0: Welcome to Winning at Work. I'm your host, Tony Moore. This is episode 86. We're closing in on the end of the season for Winning at Work. We'll be taking a break here in a couple of weeks, getting ready for a big 2022. But before we get into 2022, we're not done. We've got a few more special guests this year. And my next guest, Michael O'Donnell, is a CPG expert. He is a data expert. He has taken his 30-plus years of experience running businesses, helping CPGs put together business plans, dig in, understand the data, look at the categories, look at the subcategories, discover what's truly happening, really the truth finder behind a brand, what is doing well, what it's not doing well. And he delivers those clear messages to either his clients or the companies he works for. And he's been the the brains behind many very successful CPG companies. And that's not to say that the the CEOs and the other leaders that he's working with are not genius in their own right. It's just that his unique ability to be so detail-oriented and to really suss out what's happening within a brand, Taking that information, building a scorecard, going to the category managers, going to the grocers, going to the retailers, and having that moment of truth with them and helping that CPG come out of the shadows and be seen in its true light. Because you could have a product that's buried in a category... And the category manager doesn't understand that actually the customers that are filling their baskets in that store are really desiring something different, something more, something better. That that CPG product actually is. And by highlighting what that brand really is doing, how it's truly performing – lets you separate out, maybe get different shelf space, maybe get a slightly different placement within the retail operation so you can get that velocity and get that pull through. He explains it far much better than I can. And I just felt like this was such an important conversation for us to have. And I wanted to introduce everybody to a true CPG consulting expert who is so willing, so open to help anybody within need through his company. Side note about the audio quality, my mic was not working. Something was not quite right. And my laptop was the microphone that was recording my voice for this episode. So it's going to sound a little different than my other episodes. So just kind of put up with that, deal with that. And let's focus on Michael O'Donnell. I'm so excited to introduce you guys to him again. This is episode 86. Stay tuned, and absolutely have your pen and paper ready, and be sure you connect with Michael O'Donnell on LinkedIn. And if your brand needs extra consulting help, support, you need a better handle on the data, by all means, please reach out to Michael. He is um, he's your man. Enjoy the, today's episode. I want to introduce everybody to Michael O'Donnell. And before we jump into our main uh, topic today, our subject today, let me give you a little bit of his background. He's ten, He spent 10 years at Anheuser-Busch most recently. Well, when he finished there, he was the general sales manager and really the strategic mind behind about nine years of growth. From there into many different CPG companies, either as the VP sales or a COO began transitioning into consulting and was consulting for CPGs and was brought in to be really what I would say the truth teller, right? Data does not lie. And this really became what he is known for, why CEOs turn to him is to get to the bottom. And now he runs his own consultancy for food and beverage clients. And he joins me today and we're going to do a deep dive into CPG business planning, marketing, uh, sales strategies, I think specifically trade promotions. And uh, I'm just very happy to have Michael O'Donnell. Welcome in, Michael. Tony, thank you very much
1: for uh, that great intro. And again, uh, it's a very complex business we're in today. And data does not lie, as you say. And the, probably the last point on this is, if you don't know what you're measuring that's moving, I can tell you you're going to be unprofitable. That's usually my line to a lot of my uh, clients today.
0: Well, I'm sure you have lots of different lines because you've spent 20 years you know, or more really digging in and understanding what's happening behind a brand, what's happening behind a category. And, you know, to the average consumer that goes into the grocery store, they have no idea – that they're walking into this very complex system, they just see a grocery store with products. Why are some on the top shelf? Why are some on the bottom shelf? Why do you have Why do some have more shelf space than others? And it, 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 to them, it's just completely formal. They have they have no idea. You, on the other hand, know exactly why everything is placed, where it is, the profitability margins, and that's why I thought this would just be a fantastic episode for us to really dig in and really take a look at one of the big big problems. And that's this um, uh, trade promotional analysis or waste. You, can you even just start by telling us what is trade promotional analysis? Trade promotional analysis is
1: pretty is keeping your dollars budgeted to where you want to spend to get the right return. Most of the time, uh, some of the industry standards that I've seen, you can have a hundred million dollar company. Just as an average. And 25 million in your sales and marketing promotional budget, and between 70 to 75 as high as I've seen 80% being wasted. Why? Because they think they're supposed to explode into every account the right way. Well, it's not that at all. When I do the trade promotion, we look at the right retailers you need to promote in, right to get the best rate of return, but also to help that retailer bring in the right consumer. So let me take one step back is that if you understand the retailer's consumer and why they're coming in there and why you can help them build their basket with that existing consumer, but your brand can bring in other new consumers, right, with trade promotion uh, targeted there, both everyone wins, the consumer, the retailer, and, of course, the manufacturer.
0: But just the numbers alone are staggering. You're saying, for example, a hundred million dollar company for revenue, and they've got twenty five percent or twenty five million that they're allocating for promotions, and you're saying upwards of eighty percent is wasted. Good lord, you're talking sixteen million dollars or more that's lost. Now, is that is that just an exaggeration? Is this or, or, or why why does that happen? Because everybody thinks they have to
1: go promote at every retailer. In the same way, some retailers deserve a little bit more investment that have electronic couponing, right? And some people still uh, go by TPRs, which I think is just a waste of money, because if you go down a supermarket aisle, you see all these yellow tags. You're no different from anybody else. So you should understand the retailers, uh, what I feel, pricing structures when you walk in, to gain a better understanding of working with the electronic couponing and other uh, electronic uh, mechanisms that they're using that you can use with your brand to take those trade dollars to promote properly. And that's why you see a, a lot of big waste. Everybody says, well, I got a TPR. Well, everybody does that. And the other part of that big waste dollar is everybody does TPRs with every retailer. Some deserve it. I'm not a fan of it. But also, too, People don't use scans as, as, as well as they should. That really does show you the performance of the product going across the register, right? And other things such as when you look at trade promotions, did you get all the displays down? If you have a 300-store account, but you only got 200 stores, well, you lost 33% of that visibility of those displays going into those stores. And maybe in those 100 stores, 40 of them might have been a real home run for
0: you. Both for visibility and profitable volume. So, what you're really saying is the waste comes from not getting the ROI lift because you just you spread your advertising dollars too broadly and you didn't focus in enough. In, in short, correct. And other things that you
1: should look at when you when we start the uh, promotional planning is we look at certain things as brokerage fees, slotting, couponing. MCBs, which is manufacturer chargebacks, OIs, which is off-invoice discounting. You also should put in your spoil allowances and maybe some added other accruals that the retailer will place upon you, such as electronic couponing, you know, uh six cents uh, uh, electronic couponing uh, redemption uh, charge. These are the things that people don't look at. And they add up very quickly when you're at large accounts, such as a Kroger
0: or a, a H-E-B or Publix. Well, you sent me some documents ahead of time to kind of show me how you go about planning and how you measure trade promotions. And I think you've answered one of my questions, which is, you know, where do companies go wrong when it comes to planning? And it sounds like you've, you've kind of touched on that. I don't know if you want to expand on that a little bit more, but maybe add to that, you know, what's the, the right way to measure these trade right. promotions? Well, the way we the way we do it here is we go buy
1: skus first. If you have five skus, we put the five skus down, and we really get down to I like to call the minutia of it. So when you do invest in in these brand in your brand in these skus, which skus are really drawing the most money? Uh, sometimes you're finding out that after two years, one or two of your skus may not be doing well. Maybe it's just that they. They don't hit that particular customer base that you feel. So you can pull those out and bring in some new skews, right? But also on the trade promotion dollars targeted is that, that I, again, I see this constantly is that they keep throwing money after money using the same promotions year after year. Uh, one of the things when I sent you the documents is you have to really look at the promotion beforehand and then have a really an immediate, uh, as I like to call diagnosis of how successful or failure of the promotion was. So was it the wrong time of the year? Was it the wrong uh, items that you used? Was it the wrong vehicles that you used? All that comes into play. So when you go back to the retailer, you you have a better idea of what you're trying to present to make sure that your dollars are being spent properly.
0: Well, no one wants to have to recreate the wheel and, organize and track you know seasonal adjustments and so on is there a, a database is there a, uh, a central resource that, that you turn to to kind of analyze this this data rather than have to you know start from scratch every time?
1: Well what I do, always use is IRI and what I can do there is I basically can take a, what we call their bulk reports and I break them apart very quickly. I've done it over uh, many years to find out exactly how the category acts. In other words, let's say you're a uh, an organic applesauce. Well, you'd be put in produce. You'd be probably put in apples, but you have to look at the subcategory and rip it apart, saying, "Well, you know, I never knew my brand was number one in the organic uh, applesauce business." And when you get to that point, and you can show the growth of where your brand can go and give that back to the retailer, you show that you actually own a subcategory of this major category called organic applesauce. And at that point, you can also show him or her the right type of dollars you need to promote uh, to make sure the brand is getting off the shelf and you're getting good trial and repeat
0: sales after
1: the promotional period is done.
0: For people who are not in the food and beverage space but just find this fascinating, can you just explain what is... IRI, what does it stand for? And I think you've got a backstory.
1: Yes. Well. well, IRI is uh, Information Resources uh, International. Uh, my brother John is the president of it, and I've been dealing with them for well over 30 plus years. Uh, their reports are outstanding. Uh, they can get you whatever you need for any account, and it really helps you understand why these products are selling or why they're not selling. And it also can give you the opportunity of trying to improve the result of your sale by using their information. Uh, they're outstanding. They, they do uh, from like Nestle's all the way down to a small brand like yours. There are great options for how to purchase uh, those type of informational uh, programs that are beneficial to you. I think a lot of times why people also fail with trade promotion is, oh, well, I know this other brand did it, I'm going to do it that way. No, you're in a different category, they're in a different category, but let's get the information from IRI or an AC Nielsen, right, to show that you really should be doing it this way and promoting your product
0: in the right direction. Michael, is there a way to change the category you're placed in? What, what kind of influence does a small brand have Or does the retailer just decide, this is the category, here's where you're going in, and you've got to kind of fight your way out of it if there's a better one to be in?
1: Well, first off, if you have a product that I think is a me too, and you say, well, I'm just exactly like my competition, well, as a retailer, I'm going to be honest with you, they're going to say, well, all you're doing is trading this inventory off for that inventory. So already you put yourself behind the eight ball. So what I would do, and I've done this with a lot of brands that are in, quote, what I call mature categories, but they're disruptors, is to show that they are a brand-new product in this, quote, mature category, but they're a disruptor bringing in new consumers. But, again, if if your data aligns to your story, the retailer will listen to you. But a lot of brands that I see, well, I'm in this particular category and there's about 30 dominant players. And if you're going to say, well, I'm just as good as number 10 – That's really not a story. That's just comparing yourself against a brand that's doing maybe $80 a year and you're just starting out. I I wouldn't take you too serious as a retailer. But if you said in this particular category, I'm an organic product, a natural product, and there's no one in that category that does that, and here's where those consumers are. And, again, we put out a consumer decision tree and a category decision tree then the retailer knows you've done your homework and you know exactly where you're trying to help them build their business.
0: Well, before we get into those scorecards, because I think that's one of the unique ways that you help brands get that lift and help grocery stores get that lift is kind of through your unique scorecarding. Tell me a little bit more about, in your opinion, from all the different brands that you've seen, what makes a brand a disruptor or what are the elements behind that? It's a a brand that
1: I that you notice has taken something totally different in this huge category. And what I mean by that is if you take a look at certain disruptors that I've seen, it was like Honest Tea. Now, the iced Tea business at that point, you had a uh, real good two dominant factors. One, of course, was Arizona. And the other one was Snapple. Yes, you had Nest an and you had Lipton, but they were basically secondary and they were still there. Here comes Honest Tea whole different atmosphere, whole different packaging, a really healthy beverage. And it really became one of the best disruptors I've ever seen on the uh, beverage side uh, overall. Then <laughs> you look at another one on the food side, whoever thought Beyond Meats and would go where it is and it's plant-based and people said, geez, plant-based and you know, they were still trying to figure it out. Even the retailers were. And now you see how they disrupted the entire meat business, which was considered a mature category by certain experts. So when you look at the beverage side, like I just mentioned with Honest and the other one with a uh, Beyond Needs, you can be a very good disruptor knowing that you go in there, but you also have to give the story back with the data that you have available and ready to present. To show that you can disrupt that category, bringing in new consumers, and also bring and switching into the healthy consumers that are coming into your store.
0: So basically, you're really talking about breaking out of the status quo, and we've we've seen this premiumization happen across lots of different categories, and that's also a way that you can disrupt. Is that would, would you agree or disagree with that?
1: Yes, I agree with that. I think what's happened, if you take a look over the last ten years. The health and wellness factor uh, being driven by uh, the Generation Z and the millennials, they have really taken to that factor. It's not; it's about uh, quality and value versus price. And if you're in a mid-market stagnant brand, you are being ripped apart, believe it or not, by private label. So you're almost in the middle getting crushed, coming down by the premiumization and the uh, back end of uh, private label. So if you're in between there, you're. I, I'm going to be blunt, you're pretty much in trouble.
0: Right, because you're just – you're not standing out to the consumer. They can just go with the private label, and that just kind of eats away at, at your volume, and you're not competing as a disruptor or as a premium brand. So you're just – you're kind of just an afterthought at that point. Yes, correct.
1: It, it, that's how it, it – it really is that. And brand building – is something that's also uh, – I was very fortunate to work for some great major organizations. I learned how it works, but you don't take that same playbook and bring it to a small brand. Yes, there's some attributes I learned from that about brand building that you bring to a small. But each uh, brand that comes to me, I try to look at the category itself and to find the uniqueness that that brand can bring into the category that the retailer could notice that brings in, you know, a new additional consumer and an additional sale to their basket.
0: Well, okay. So this information through IRI or through whatever other means that you're finding this data, this data is out there. So why is the CPG company missing this important Intel that would tell them, Hey, you are the number one selling organic sauce." Why, why have they missed that? Why, why, are, are they looking at the data differently? Are they needing some kind of a, a mindset shift? What, I'm just, I'm confused because if the data is there, shouldn't they already be looking at this? Shouldn't they already know they should be pumping all their trade dollars into, hey, this category or this niche or subcategory, as you call it? Yes.
1: Well, that's
0: the whole thing. In, in other words, I, I, there's 260 categories
1: basically in a supermarket. And underneath that, some of the numbers that have come up, is close to you. <laughs> this is crazy, but true. There's probably about 9,600 subcategories now. If you're just in, uh, let's say, the frozen side, and you're in pizza, there's close now to almost 220 uh, different manufacturers, which almost comes out, and you'll find this interesting, to 1,175 SKUs. There's no possible way that a buyer has the time to do deep dives. What they normally do, and it's human nature, is to take the top 10 to the top 20 and concentrate because they feel these people are driving the bus. Yes and no. Yes, they are coming there, but one of the things they're doing is is that the mindset of all the retailers has to change because they're price promoting a certain brand that the competitor has, and now all of a sudden all you're doing is trading off that consumer from competitor A to competitor B to competitor C, right? So when you come in and you explain to them, look, my brand is different. I'm not price driven. I'm more quality driven. It gives a better ring. And when we do promote properly to get you these new consumers, they will see the product quality and value versus the price. And this way you're hanging on to a customer who wants a more unique brand. So, I really feel bad for the category managers uh, of all these supermarket chains because they almost act the same in one way. is that, okay, it's it's these top brands and all, but there are uh, brands within that category and in the subcategory that can bring them additional dollars, but they just don't have the time to do it. And when I threw out these numbers to you, which I've studied, it's very tough for these people to keep an eye on. So it's up to you to identify why you why you should be there and also identify why uh, both of you can be good partners to each other to bringing those consumers,
0: both existing and new. So by digging down and looking at the different subcategory growth that you might be experiencing, you know, a lift because there is this push for value or for, frankly, mission and purpose based companies, we're finding that there's a, you know, a, a lift for that. Maybe because there's not enough trade promotion happening for your brand, you could, you could make that business case correct to the category manager that we do need to put money behind this because we're going to get a lift or we're going to bring in those other people to this category and start competing against those top 10 or top 20. Is that, is that uh, what you do? Yes, you're correct on
1: that. But the other part of it is is that you're bringing a better uh, customer for their sales. And that's something that, excuse me,
0: is that that's quite important. Now, how do you gauge and and judge this, quote, unquote, better customer? What I do is, uh, first off, I I look at the store sales and everything,
1: and I'm lucky that I also get what we call a customer profile. I can tell the retailer, this is exactly your consumer who's in there. And it goes by demographics. It goes by uh, market basket sale. It goes by average uh, items in the basket, average margin. Okay? I also bring that into the fold with all of my brands. So when a retailer looks at it, they know exactly the consumer that's coming into their store, that you've done the homework for them. And they also like that you know what they're trying to do to bring in new consumers. And there's uh, some really neat stuff that we build here. It's already been built that we can just slide in those numbers when we go after, like, for instance, uh, a price shopper. Their average shopper age is this. Their average sale is that. They're college educated. Uh, this is the amount of items that they buy, so on and so forth. And with you, having that information and showing that uh, retailer exactly wh- why that consumer is coming to your store, and they are looking for these brands, you stand a better chance of getting on the shelf and working with them as well. And one other key factor, uh, Tony, you brought up too. I call it the four-legged stool. One is, and it's real quick, you got the brand itself, of course, but you have to have a great e-commerce site to draw people in. And then with that, take the other leg of the stool is your retail, which is your brick and mortar, to work with their, with their e-commerce going up and down. And the last leg is Amazon itself. I think Amazon you have to leave by itself because of all the uh, intricate parts that they've got with seller central and vendor central and how do you work with either one or both. So when you're building a brand, you have to work with brick and mortar also with their e-commerce and all that. And, again, with your own e-commerce because consumers will – buy directly from manufacturers as well. That's another phenomenon that's go- that's gone on really since these pandemic. One statistic you'll find interesting in 13 years it took uh what was it 16% of the total population to buy online. Since the pandemic it's up to 33%. So a third of this country is now buying online. So that tells you that this pandemic has changed and shifted consumers. Uh, Drastically, so that's why the e-commerce websites and you working with your uh, retail partners has become that much more important, which is part of your trade spend too. Going back to that,
0: so if, if I understand correctly, when you give them the shopper profile, you can show a category manager and the general manager of the of the retailer what is going in that basket, what the margins are, and you can point to this good for you, this trend in buying a higher quality product. So then when you go back and say, let's just keep taking that pizza category as an example, then you can highlight a brand that is a, a, a more of a value, uh, maybe higher, you know, better ingredients. Maybe that's how it's marketed. Then if you promote that, that product then becomes what that shopper profile is already buying, so you're basically saying, "Look, you're going to increase the spend because they're going to go after those premium products, and you're not highlighting those premium products. You're kind of you're pushing the cheaper brand. You need to be highlighting and, and promoting the other one because that's what the consumer in there is buying. Is that is is that kind of the angle you're taking?
1: Yes, and also too a couple of we're seeing more improved now. The trips have went down. Okay. And that's because of this pandemic. And I, uh, one uh, chain that I'm working with at one time was averaging 2.75 to as high as 3.27. Now today, they're down to 1.95. But if you look at what they've done on the e-commerce. Wait, they, they Mike, is, is that trips per week? Yes. Okay. So they've went down to that. And what they're doing now is shifting back. So they went into the e-commerce. Now they have to change their whole mindset, and that's where you have to work with them to make sure they don't lose that, that quality consumer going out there, you know, that they won't go to your competition to look for that for your item, per se, or other items. And that's the one thing you, you've got to stay very focused on.
0: Now, for those people who maybe they are, they're new to this concept of, of CPG trade promotions, how much, if any, does the grocery store or the retailer I should say contribute to the to that trade promotion? Is this some kind of a a co op system or does the brand have to foot the bill or do, is there a shared a shared cost shared investment? It depends on the retailers. some
1: expect you to foot it, uh, but you can negotiate it, and some others, as I like to say, they lean in, and there 's some other uh, distributors i 'm sorry <coughs> retailers, which is very interesting. They call I call it a self subsidized. They'll I've seen it for a, a tremendous brand where they had it at six ninety nine and it's at four ninety nine and uh, it went for a month. And I called the brand up. It's a dear friend of mine. And I said, Did you know that uh, such and such is doing this? And they said, No, I had no idea. I took a photo and I sent it to him because I was doing a, a store uh, shelf set analysis, and he was stunned. So. It, it varies from retailer to retailer, but they're all negotiable. I think that's the problem. And Again, when brands walk in, they don't negotiate, and it's almost like they'll, they'll write a check for anything. There's got to be certain parameters that you have to work with a retailer. You know, There's some retailers I work with a contract, believe it or not. If we can do this in this contract and you guys ex- execute, we, we will 100% pay freight on it, and that does work as well. But you can't be afraid not to to ask for it. If you don't ask for it, how do you know they're going to say no to begin with, right? And that's what negotiations are all about when you work with a retailer.
0: So, when a a CPG that's out there, let's say, is listening to this, what are the things that are happening in their current company or their brand that they're thinking? You know, I, I, we need help. What is it that's happening? that draws them to you or to this type of consulting?
1: What it, it comes down to is, well, our sales aren't doing well. And the first thing is I just, I'll look at the brand, I taste the brand. Uh, I have some very good people I trust that I would send the brand to. And if they say, geez, the brand is great. Uh, okay, so now we know the brand tastes well. What do you think of the packaging? Great. Okay, check the box there. The next thing is, which retailers are you in? Some uh, retailers, I would not go in with this particular brand for the following reasons. Now, there's other brands that don't understand that. I mean, they do understand that, and they've been successful. A lot of the brands come to me, I'm losing money. And it's, it starts really with the trade promotion, and they, they've allowed not working with their broker. And that's where, uh, before Tony brought up the scorecard, you have to hold your broker accountable and a scorecard i got to be in 500 stores every month. You've got to make sure that you get the reports to so make sure you get in the 500 stores. you got to make sure the price is at, let's just say, 699 and you have four SKUs. That's the first thing you have to do because you can spend all the money you want, but if you're not measuring it and you're not keeping an eye on it, you're going to go broke very quickly. So a lot of the brands that come to me is they don't have these internal systems to keep an eye on where they're spending their money and how their sales are growing.
0: All right, so tell us more about that, because I think that's a great way for us to kind of wrap up this really deep dive, is get into the scorecard, because that seems to be where the rubber hits the road. You've put everything in place. Now you've got it down on a scorecard. You have your expectations set. You're giving them to the broker, the distributor, whoever, or even the, the retailer, and then you can sit down and, and say, hey, we're hitting the mark, we're not. So tell us some more about this this system and, and, and how the data gets fed into it. Cause if you don't have the right data. You know, you got nothing.
1: Correct. So what you do is first off, you get the right brokers. Okay. Then you have that. They get you the, usually every two weeks you get it. So you plug it into your scorecard, which would have the number of stores, your average price, <clears throat> number of SKUs. And the last one I put down is market visits. That's a very big thing. How many times are they in the store to make sure that your brand is being packed out properly, being priced properly on the shelf, and that you haven't lost any shelf space? So in that scorecard, you have to have a meeting. Normally once a month, it's about an hour with your broker. And you also go out and work with some of the broker representatives just to do what I call market route rides to make sure they get, you get to know them. They get to know your brand a little bit better, and you keep the story consistent. One of the problems I see with brands is they turn it over, and it's a running joke with me, but it's like you have a baby, and you bring it to somebody's doorstep. You knock on the door and say, here's my child. I'll be back in 18 years. Make sure it grows up right. Uh, I don't think you do that with your child. You certainly shouldn't do that with your brand either. You got to go into the house with the broker and say, this is how we're going to grow this brand. And, and hold them accountable using these scorecards that I have. And like I said, that's just a couple of ones that I also have. I also have a secondary scorecard on price promotions. Did we execute the promotions properly? Were the displays on the floor? Was the uh, money that we spent allocated properly to make sure that promotion was executed to its 100% satisfaction for everybody? And if you can do that, and you should do that, you, you'll be successful nine times out of 10. But the scorecard also keeps you really focused on what I call the day-to-day activities to make sure a consumer is going to get and purchase your brand. Go get it and purchase it. That's what a scorecard really is. It, it, it's, it's just like when you get your, uh, report card <laughs> when you were in school. Are you getting A's or are you getting S's? And, you know, you'll know right away. But the best part about our scorecard is it's a rolling 12-month. And we keep we really stay on top of that with all of our brokers and our retailers when we have our meetings. So everybody's on the same page.
0: I'm, I'm just thinking how detailed that, that that scorecard is. I imagine you would vet or weed out brokers who do not want to comply with those kind of rigorous standards. Now, I, I could be wrong, but... No, you're correct. I if yeah, you're gonna, I, I would think that, you know, you sit down with a, in a meeting with a potential new broker and they see this, you know, they're either going to roll their eyes or they're going to go say, hey, these guys have got their act button up.
1: It's both. There's some brokers, and I, I always, and one broker told me, geez, Mike, this scorecard, I go, if, if I'm going to hold you accountable, I just can't do it by some arbitrary system in my head. It has to be the numbers that are being you know, pulled back, that are being put in black and white, that we can discuss to make sure you're going to make your full commission. I've got some great brokers that really will fight hard on promotional dollars when we uh, work together because they said, I'd rather make 5% on full margin than 5% on a discounted price. And, those are the brokers that I work with very closely, and I've been very successful working with them. And they know about the scorecard. They go, Mike, how are we doing with this? Did we get the amount of SKUs we were supposed to this quarter? What did we miss? Mike, I noticed that we, we went over an extra 50 stores in this display uh, period that we had targeted. So it's really good conversation because it's not making, as I like to call it, making stuff up university. MSU. This is really detailed and factual information by numbers and again making sure you, you, your numbers are clean rinsed and uh, as I like to say ready to put down on the sheet to have a great discussion with that broker who can also have it with the retailer with you there as well.
0: Well you know the old football analogy you, you got the uh, super, the uh, superstars that that play they say look put on the tape. Put on the tape and you can see what I'm doing. And that's essentially what, what you're saying here. It's like, look, let's let's put it on tape and let's really view and look at the results. I'm curious, because you've worked with so many brokers, I'd love to get your opinion on trends that you're seeing in the food and beverage space. Obviously, we know there's the, the good for you. There's a huge rise. You mentioned, you know, the plant-based meat. Are, are you seeing... um an upcoming brokerage or brokers that are going to start specifically honing in on just plant-based and, and kind of offering that, or are they just kind of blended in with everything else they're doing?
1: Right now, um, when you look at it, uh, they're all trying to blend it. And some of them, and I don't want to name them out here, they're doing, they're getting, they're trying to understand it, but there's other ones that I really like. That they've brought in experts from the plant-based and natural, and organic, and health and wellness, and I, uh, I deal with them as well. And they have really excited me that they see that that consumer is there. I mean, I think I, I think I had the one stat here. There's 133 million now, what we consider open consumers that really want health and wellness. And I keep telling people, if you really want to be successful, yeah, just ask for two percent of it. Just start Wait, with wait, wait,
0: wait. Yeah. wait. what is an open? Cons- what, what does that mean? An open. open so cons- cons- they're open
1: to health and wellness products. They're hearing a lot about it. They will try it if it fits their lifestyle. If the taste is good, the packaging's right, and sustainability. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, and sustainability. By the way, that's the that's a number one thing with packaging too. I'm changing a company over right now with the glass. So, yeah,
0: PET is getting hit
1: right now, and it will continue to keep getting hit. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. I've got a lot of upcoming podcast guests that we're, we're kind of tack. Well, they're tackling the issue, but I see it happening, and we're, we're trying to get out front, you know, have those conversations and help kind of educate people as to what they can do. You've got 133 million open consumers now. No one knows the future, and there's – you know, wild estimates and just how big that plant-based space can get. What do you, I mean, what's your opinion? What do you think? How how big can this thing get? Can it really start taking taking share? I, th- I think what you're seeing is uh, in certain categories that
1: I've watched that are the premiumization, as you like to call it, which is correct, they're driving it. The, the generation... Z's, uh, and the Millenniums. And they are just driving that category. And somebody said, well, what about price, Mike? I said, if, if you thought price was everything, why is craft beers continuing to grow high-end alcoholic uh, products such as bourbon and whiskeys and wines, okay? So just that alone is very, very interesting. And I see this continuing to grow probably between 5 to 10% over the next decade easily because they want quality brands. Uh, you know, it, it, the change of the guard is here. Uh, I think this pandemic really re-educated people on being healthy again. And uh, to me, I look at all these numbers, you see that all these plant-based products and all these wonderful other brands coming out in food and beverage that are healthy uh, items. I think the sky's the limit. As long as you know who your consumer is and, and targeting it. In fact, I've taken a brand just recently, and I've got it now in produce, and it's doing extremely well. And the founder said, geez, I would have never thought produce. In fact, we may be able to take this item, go one step further, and put it in pharmacy by one of the largest retailers in the country. They really are excited about it. They think it's a health and wellness print, which I knew, but I didn't think I could see it in the pharmacy, but when they explained it to me, it makes sense. So you can see even the retailers are starting to pull up on them and go after it as well.
0: Well, I guess, you know, final final, uh, thoughts here. When you go through the grocery store and you see all these categories, you know, your mind, your eye, you're seeing things completely different from everyone else. And I know you see these status quo categories and brands that just don't seem to be going anywhere. If if someone was really, you know, the entrepreneur and they, they want to tackle and go after, you know, a category that's ripe for destruction, disruption. You got any ideas where, um, where that might be happening or is that the, the million dollar question and they've got to work with you to get that. So it, it's up to you if you want to answer that. I'll leave
1: you with this thought. I think every category is waiting for a disruptor. Every category. Now I really believe that I, uh, you, you can see it in, in carbonated beverages, soda, all the way through into even ice cream. Yes, the, the, if you can be a disruptor,
0: and have yes, a is the blister, answer. <laughs> yes, there you go. There you go. All the above. Well, you know, you've been great about answering everything, and you know, I was going to try to hold your feet to the fire to see if we could, you know, get a little hidden gem if there was one particular category, but. You're right. I mean, premiumization is is happening really across the board.
1: It's just an interesting time. I, I grew up in this business, and uh, you know, for me, and I, my father was a, a manager for p for 44 years. Of course, my brothers are in with IRI, and we're always talking. And it's still a great business. Is it hard work? Yeah, but I just love getting up every day because it's just a fun business. When you can give people a good, healthy product to sell, and it does something to improve their life what other business do you want to be in
0: really yeah i don't know i really i don't meet anybody in food and beverage that doesn't love it that's not passionate that's why i work this space that's why i i love to talk to guys like you and kind of get your word out get your get your voice heard because as i said at the top you know you're that that well that brain behind the CEO, no offense to the CEOs, you know, they've got so many, they've got so many things that they're trying to to handle, you know, and, and you take this over for them and really lay out that, that beautiful, um, kind of that, that business path right forward. Now, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Is that just to find you on LinkedIn, which I yes, uh, Yeah. LinkedIn, LinkedIn and my phone number is there along with my
1: email address. I've been very fortunate because I've had a lot of, People in this industry, word of mouth is probably the best for me, and it always has been. Uh, there's been some really great people who have done that for me
0: uh, over the years. Well, Michael, I, I appreciate the, the the deep dive. I've talked to other guys, and you know, some there there is value in being an inch wide and a mile deep. And I feel like that's what we did today. Thank and you. it's it's great to have that you know that deep context. Michael, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you again, Todd, and continued success in your great organization as well. Thank you. Thank you, sir.